Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I'm Pat Iyer, and today I have with me Connie Schaefer. We're going to be talking about one of the topics that has a direct bearing on the damages of people who go into the hospital for some reason and end up getting a catastrophic infection and how that infection should be managed so that we can increase the ability of people to be able to recover from those infections. As legal nurse consultants, we could see the development of sepsis in a hospitalized patient or a nursing home patient in any kind of a case. And sometimes it's handled well, and sometimes it isn't. Connie has extensive experience as a registered nurse. She's been in the, involved in the area of infection control and the term of infection preventivist. Mm -hmm. I don't think I said that right, Connie. Preventionist. That's An correct. <laughs> preventionist for more than 20 years, both in acute care and in long-term care. And as we were preparing for this podcast, we were talking about the huge impact of COVID on management of infection in those settings. Connie has experience as a legal nurse consultant for the last couple of years. And as she says, she built her business one case at a time. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Connie. Thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's go right into what are some of the implications of when there is a delay in the diagnosis of a serious infection? Well, I can give you an example of one. Um, there are many implications. I mean, obviously they can develop sepsis very quickly. Um, I can give you an example of a lawsuit uh, involving a post-operative infection where nurses were actually sued and it was not for causing the infection, but it was for their lack of response to some of the well-known signs and symptoms of these infections. It involved a 32-year-old man who fell while he was snowboarding. He had surgery for a compound fracture of his tibia and fibula of his left leg, and he developed these symptoms of infections while still post-op, but the nurses did not catch it on the med surge floor. He had increased pain, and they just felt that that was normal for uh, someone with surgery, but he also had a fever several times greater than 38 uh, Celsius, and he had redness and swelling, and nothing of this was reported to the doctor. Doctor stopped by on, on post-op day two, and he the patient had finally gotten to sleep, so the doctor chose not to wake him. And so he wrote the discharge orders without even seeing uh, the patient's leg. Later that night, they, uh, the patient's wife had to call EMS and come and get him, and he was in full-blown sepsis in that short period of time. He spent 13 days in the ICU and had several additional surgeries. Uh, 18 months later, 
he was, you know, after the original surgery, he was still walking with a cane. He had a deformity in that leg and he couldn't go back to his construction job. So then he did sue the two nurses. It was simply because they didn't recognize the symptoms uh, of infection that uh, were pretty telltale. They were pretty obvious. So yes, that, that would be an example uh, of a delay in getting the diagnosis. And you're identifying some significant damages, right? The loss of his job, um, 13 days in ICU, having to require the use of a cane for walking even a year and a half after he got out of the hospital. That's certainly serious. Yes, it is. Mm. I know that we've been putting a lot of emphasis on the serious aspect of septic shock and septus, for example, in the last few years, having been working in this field for as many years as you have, can you give us a sense of what happened in the infectious disease world where people started focusing on sepsis and the need to create a more standardized approach for treating it? Well, probably what happened was uh, the patients were not getting treated in a timely manner and things were being delayed and the patient was getting sicker and sicker. And so when CMS came on board and started um, having quality uh, indicators for, uh, for these healthcare uh, facilities and healthcare workers to timely take care of the patient, uh, they started having checkbox and therefore bundles were created. And that's what we call the sepsis bundle. This is just a collection of tests and treatments that help us to identify and treat them quicker. That's the whole goal. Get to it faster um, before it, before there's organ damage. I mean, that's that's the whole purpose of it. Because in the past, I mean, I think that there was a lot of extra time that happened, and therefore, um, time is obviously injury in in situations such as this. Um, in in sepsis. We look for uh, we look for the signs of SIRS. SIRS is a systemic inflammatory response syndrome, and this is where we talked about in the first example where he had a fever greater than thirty eight, which is uh, greater than one hundred point four, is what we're usually used to calculating, and a heart rate more than one hundred, respiratory rate more than twenty, oxygen saturation less than ninety two percent, and possibly a low blood pressure blood pressure less than 90. They also look for a lab value of a lactate greater than two and probably mental status changes. And then of course they have to look for where is it coming from? You know, where's the source of the infection? And I'm assuming that all of those pieces of the bundle have been ones that have been proven through evidence-based medicine to be Absolutely. critical, at least yes. in terms of the markers that we recognize? And then does the bundle also define the appropriate treatment and the timing and the cultures? It, it does. It does. Um, they have to get blood cultures 
pretty quickly. Um, and that, I think that is where we still have a, a lack. We get them, but oftentimes we struggle with contaminations and things such as this that happens with blood cultures, which can, which can totally mess up the whole diagnostic process. But anyway, the treatment is lots of IV fluids, you know, just hydrate them, um, provide oxygen and supportive care, antibiotics. They usually start with a broad spectrum and then they narrow it as soon as they uh, locate the source uh, and they're able to uh, specify it when they do, they, they determine at that time wh where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense of how dangerous is septic, sepsis and septic shock? How many people die as a result of getting involved in this catastrophic blood infection? It, it's really terrible. Um, back in 2017, there were almost 49 million cases with 11 million sepsis-related deaths worldwide. And that's about 20% of all global deaths were from sepsis. That That's significant. Yes, that is amazing. Mm -hmm. We know that septic shock can appear, present itself anywhere in our healthcare system, inside or outside of our healthcare system, in a nursing home, in a physician's office, in an ER, in at um, an assisted living facility, anywhere. And there are so many things from what you're describing that have to go right in order to get to that 80% survival as opposed to the 20% death rate Tell us about where are, from a liability perspective, where are some of the places where our systems break down and those breakdowns have a direct impact on the patient? Well, we've talked about a few of them already, um, and, and it, but it's a work in progress. We're always trying to improve. Communication is huge. It's it's how they communicate with the lab. It's how they communicate with the providers. It's It possibly could be um, just how the EMR works in terms of the order processing. All of these are very delicate and must be functioning at top level in order for this timeliness to happen um, in taking care of the patient. Um, you know, it takes time to get the blood cultures and then to initiate treatment. And if they're poking around being slow, these things are a problem. One of the biggest challenges in my recent uh, infection prevention at a large hospital um, was obtaining the blood cultures. We actually had an unfortunately high a contamination rate, and this slows everything down. It's it's a problem um, when you get a contaminated specimen. You think that the patient is sick with something that maybe they're not. It, it causes a lot of problems. Also, there could be just simple delays, just letting the provider know so that orders can be given. So there's a lot um, multifactorial in terms of the interdepartmental communication challenges and issues that we have that cause system failure. And we know that all those failures can add up and create a domino effect that ultimately results in the patient not getting the appropriate treatment in the appropriate timing. Um, I'm also aware of situations where a patient might go to an emergency department and 
blood work is drawn and then the patient gets transferred to another facility, but the results mm. don't go with the patient or they don't get reported to the next facility or they get reported and the next facility thinks, oh, that was a contaminant. Right. It wasn't an actual infection. And then you're losing so much time right. in that process. I've seen that happen more than I want to admit. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> then from the perspective of looking at this whole thing, we're analytical as legal nurse consultants. I know there are pieces of the medical record that we should focus on when there is a question about sepsis being appropriately treated. What are some of the pieces that are so important for us to be able to focus our attention on? Well, probably the largest, um, most area of focus is in the micro, uh, the microbiology section of the lab. Um, and you have to know how to read uh, the culture results also. But, you know, if you're looking as a legal nurse, the, the big picture is you always need the admission and discharge summaries. You need to be able to see the uh, documentation from the progress notes and the nurse's notes and, and uh, additionally of that. But the lab reports are crucial as well as the vital signs and uh, flow sheets that you can find there. But those are major areas that you would look for. And if there be any x-rays or radiology reports that, that would add to uh, the diagnostic process, mm -hmm. need to look there too. Are there certain organisms that are hallmark for being contamination? Uh, uh, yes. The, staph epi that we have mm -hmm. on our skin. And, uh, you know, you could actually find lots of just, per, you know, superfluous bugs that live everywhere on people's skin that don't cause disease. And it's, that's what's usually getting contaminated because, um, it, the, either the skin was not cleaned appropriately when they, when they put the needle in to get the culture or the process of collecting it to put it into the blood tubes, some breach in the system that caused it. So it's usually a skin organism, what you'll find in the contaminations. All right. And then what sticks in my head from when I used to teach GU nursing was looking at the volume of organisms that show up in the culture result. What sticks in my head is over 100,000 is significant. Can yes. you comment on that? Is that my correct perception? That's primarily when you're looking at a urine culture. That's where that is significant. If it's less than 100,000, it, it may not be um, a problem. It could be just an asymptomatic bacteria urea that somebody might have. But 100,000 organisms or more is worthy of an infection. <laughs> and sometimes people will have more than one organism in their urine. But that's, that is what they look at for their urine. We also look at culture and sensitivity. And um, there's three little letters that you'll see connected to an organism and connected to an antibiotic. And you, you want to know whether the uh, particular organism is sensitive or resistant. And then there's a third category called it's intermediate. Mm. And that's not as good for treatment, but it's very crucial. For instance, you were talking about the urinary tract infection. If, if the doctor prescribes um, 
Cipro, for example, for urinary tract infection, and you get the culture and sensitivity result, and you find that there's an R next to Cipro, Ciprofloxin. And then you know, why am I giving this? Because it's not going to help the problem. So you really have to pay attention to your culture results uh, with what you have going on. Now, when you say you really have to pay attention, is that a physician responsibility only? Is that a nursing responsibility in addition to a physician responsibility? It's a great question. I always felt like as a nurse that I needed to bring it to their attention if I discovered it. Yes, the doctor is the one that is going to have to change the antibiotic, but many times we bring it to their attention. And I don't know if they would point blame or not blame necessarily, but it's important that we work as a team and we need to understand these sensitivity panels so that we can communicate effectively with all the professionals that are caring for the patients. All right. So we're talking about nurses paying attention to those results. Mm -hmm. Does the lab have any responsibility to send an alert or make a phone call when they see something like a positive blood culture? They do. And uh, many of the large metro hospitals, even the small ones, have systems in place that they automatically will flag it so that anybody who's looking at the record can see, oh, I better look at this. There's a flag there. It's pointing to something not being quite right. And uh, systems have improved over the past years so that they make that easier. Um, the lab has an automated system, but they also manually do it if it's if it's a critical high or if it's a um, you know something that's quite concerning. For instance, if it's a if it's a multi-drug resistant organism, they're gonna possibly even make a phone call in addition to what the system does through the EMR. Tell us about multi-resistant drug organisms. It has a very sinister, sinister sound to it. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. How can you stand out to get in front of your ideal attorney clients? In today's competitive environment, it's crucial for legal nurse consultants to establish themselves as experts and attract potential clients. That's where content marketing comes in. As a legal nurse consultant, you possess a wealth of knowledge and experience that can be invaluable to attorneys and their clients. Content marketing in this digital age can be an effective way to showcase your expertise and attract the right audience. But content marketing is just one piece of the puzzle. Networking and referral marketing are equally important strategies that can help you grow your client base. By establishing relationships with attorneys and other professionals in the legal industry, you can increase your visibility and build a network of potential clients. In this ever-changing market landscape, it's essential to stay updated on the strategies that work and those that don't. That's why I want to share with you some valuable insights from marketing in 2024. 
in this session at our October 26, 27, and 28, 2023 LNC Success Online Conference. You'll learn which marketing strategies you should use and which ones to ignore. You'll also discover the critical ways to determine what kind of content to create for your audience. Whether it's videos, podcasts, newsletters, or blogging, I've tried it all through my years as an LNC. I built a multi-million dollar independent LNC business, and now I'm back in the field, and I help other LNCs achieve their goals. LNCs work with me to make more money, get more cases, and enjoy a higher level of work-life balance. I have a proven track record of success, and I have helped countless legal nurse consultants thrive in their businesses. If you're ready to take your legal nurse consulting business to new heights, join me as we explore the strategies that will work for you in 2024. Let's make your expertise shine and attract those ideal attorney clients. Click the link below to get your seat at our October 26, 27, and 28, 2023 LNC Success Online Conference. Don't miss this opportunity. Sign up now for the conference and get ready to transform your legal nurse consulting business. Now let's return to the show. It does. Most of the general public think of it as the term superbugs, but these are just organisms that they're resistant to many or most antibiotics. And for, for people that suffer from these conditions, they need, while they're in a healthcare setting, they need to be in contact isolation, which is when you see the people come in with the gowns and the gloves and all the protective measure. And the purpose and the reason is, is because these organisms are very contagious. And unfortunately, the majority of the time when people develop these infections, it's usually on our hands. It's on the hands of the healthcare workers or visitors or uh, that type of thing. But it, it that is usually where it, the source is, is on our hands. That's why gloves and hand hygiene and then the contact precautions are important. But some examples of the superbugs would be MRSA, uh, methicillin-resistant uh, Staph aureus, and there's CRE, there's VR, it's alphabet soup, okay, Pat, it's alphabet soup. There's VRE, C. diff, Candida auris, there's CRA, that's carpipinum-resistant uh, acinobacter, there's all the ESBLs that are attached to E. coli and enterobacteriase, and uh, these are long words that are hard to pronounce, but the, the general uh, takeaway is they're very contagious. Uh, I could tell you an example of one time I was caring for um, a young man who had cerebral palsy and he lived in a group home and he had a urinary tract infection. And I'm not even exaggerating to tell you the CNS panel on that urine uh, culture and sensitivity, every single letter was R. Mm -hmm. it, it was 100% resistant to every single antibiotic. So there was nothing in our arsenal to help take care of him. Uh, the doctor said in that case, what we had to do is uh, provide fluids and supportive measures, good nutrition, 
and whatever we could do and allow enough time for the young man's body to hopefully uh, be able to develop some type of intermediary uh, acceptance to the antibiotics so he can get treated. It was quite interesting. That's a pretty horrifying situation, isn't it? Very scary uh, because it might not even be what we call a superbug, but in my opinion, it was a superbug. I think it was Proteus mirabilis, which is not considered a superbug, but it was all resistant and you don't want to get that out in the public. <laughs> I can think of cases that I have reviewed with people who are in ICU who developed the type of panel that you're describing where everything came back resistant. And I could tell from reading the progress notes that it was dismaying the providers who were scratching their heads saying, what can we do? And keeping their fingers crossed. And then eventually her system was no longer able to fight the infection and she succumbed mm -hmm. from the infection. Yes, yes, it's pretty sad. Well, I know that our listener and or who's listening to this on our audio channels is familiar with the way that our viruses keep changing, specifically COVID keeps changing to mutate and figure out what's going to be the version that will survive. <laughs> Are our bacterial infections doing that? Is that what's behind the superbug phenomena? Uh, yes, I, I I do believe that there is um, like a transition um, evolution, so to speak, of these microbugs, because it used to be MSSA, with the, which is methicillin-sensitive yes. Staphylococcus aureus. And then over the course of time and too much antibiotic use, and it just happened, maybe the the individual person's uh, own immune system can't fight it as much anymore, that sensitive panel becomes resistant. So it is kind of a, a life evolution of these microbes. W many of them are relatively new. We never had some of the carpopenem resistant organisms in the past, and now we do. So yes, I do believe that is that is the case. And then as we look at these cases as a legal nurse consultant, we could be involved in reviewing a case where the primary concern was the management of the infection, mm -hmm. or it could be that an infection complicates something like traumatic injuries from mm -hmm. a car crash. We've talked about a delay in recognizing sepsis. We talked about a delay in treating sepsis. We also talked about a liability issue of not providing the patient with organism-specific antibiotics, the ones that are resistant, and we keep on pumping them in every eight hours. Mm -hmm. What about the liability associated with not even recognizing that there's an infection? Are we still missing infections? I I, I think we are. I mean, in the in the very first example that I gave you, um, they just saw the pain that the young man was having as normal for post-operative, but they didn't look at the other symptoms. And so I do believe that we are missing. Um, I, I think that we need to open our eyes and, and look at these SIRS, the systemic, you mm -hmm. know, 
examples of your blood pressure and your heart rate and your temperature. And all of these things are pretty telltale that something's going on. It looks at it systemically instead of locally. And these, these help you. So I do think that we are missing some of those. And is there any additional advice that you give to you could give to a legal nurse consultant who is evaluating a case involving an infection that got out of control? Let's mm -hmm. say there was a delay in recognizing it, delay in treating it. Anything that you would recommend to that legal nurse consultant in the analysis of that type of a case? So I think that the timeline is very helpful for legal nurses, because then you can pretty well determine how long did it actually take to get him treated? How long did this process actually take to get the finalization on the culture? I mean, some of these things, you know, once you get it in the timeline, you can kind of get the big picture and be able to analyze it better mm -hmm. um, in terms of what's really going on. You know, there are things that are complications that just happen in life. But if if there's a cause behind something getting worse, then that's what we look for, that we look behind the scenes. We look, is there a device related? Is it related to a central line? Is it related? Maybe we didn't get the dressing changed uh, appropriately or in a timely manner. Maybe they've had a urinary catheter too long. Um, you know, you need, you need to look at the big picture and and I think that's what nurses do. We we know we know how to take care of the patients. And so you could look at the big picture, but the, to me, the timeline helps me get started on an antibiotic and an infection case. Yeah, and that's a great point, is pulling together the data from the medical record, looking at the white count, looking at the culture results, looking at the temperature, the other vital signs, the reactions or the lack thereof of reactions right. to those mm -hmm. warning signs. Right. Where did the communication break down? You know, right. Is there also a, a breakdown in language between the patient and the providers so that the patient may be experiencing some symptoms, but not able to convey them in a language that the healthcare providers understand? Right. And then what is their responsibility to get an interpreter involved so that the patient can accurately relay and tell the providers how they feel. That's right. That's good. Mm -hmm. So many places, Connie, where this whole <laughs> thing can go right down the tubes. That's right. <laughs> oh, it's, it's scary. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. I know that the person who's watching this is going to want to know more about you and the services that you offer. We've specified your focuses on infectious diseases and as an infection preventionist and a legal nurse consultant. This is your area of involvement as well as working on additional kinds of cases. What would be the best way for people to connect with you? Well, I have an email address, um, doing business as email, which would be Connie, C-O-N-N-I-E, at LegalNurseSolution.com. Um, and that's probably the easiest way to reach out to me. Uh, once you get, once you send me an email, I'm pretty quick to respond. And then I can uh, send you my phone number or whatever we need to do to get talking at that point. All right. And the email address one more time. Let's repeat it. Okay. It's Connie, 
at legal news, Connie at legalnursesolution.com. All right. And note that solution is singular. Correct. All right, because we don't want anything missing and floating around in the Ethernet looking for you. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Connie. Mm -hmm. uh, you've certainly made me think about infections in a different light and the critical importance of the healthcare team in recognizing and treating infections before they get out of control. Mm -hmm makes me think about a fire that starts as a little match. And then before you know it, the house is burning down. Mm -hmm. It can happen that way with sepsis. Very much so. I think of it also like the frog in the kettle. They don't even know that they're being boiled. <laughs> it just happens so gradually and then boom. <laughs> it just makes me think of that. I don't know why. <laughs> It makes me laugh because I was talking to one of my attorney clients and he didn't know the story of the frog in the pot of water. Uh -huh. And I used that analogy with him. And I said, you know, it's like when a frog is put in a pot of, mm -hmm. of hot water and you start heating up the temperature and the frog gets <laughs> used to it and then doesn't jump out in time. <laughs> and he said, Pat, you had a very cruel childhood. <laughs> I said, no, it's it's not something that I did. No, no, this is the story. So then I went looking on the internet and I found out that, you know, that the origin of the story and that it actually, you will kill the frog either way. The, the other part of that is if you drop a frog in boiling, right. it jumps out. Well, it turns out it doesn't jump out. It gets killed. Oh my goodness. That's so, but they do say that. Okay. Oh, right. That doesn't work. It's a goner, no matter whether you slowly heat it up or you mm -hmm. drop it in boiling water. So that's a lesson for anyone listening to this who wants to replicate <laughs> the experiment. You're going to kill the frog no matter oh. what. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a guest on the show, Connie. Thank you for having me. It's been enjoyable. And for you who's been watching this show, we will be back next week with a new show. You'll hear a little bit about that coming up in the next portion of this show before we close off. If you haven't been to LegalNurseBusiness.com and selected free reports that will help you in building your business, we have a variety of them on our homepage. And we encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll find these podcasts on Legal Nurse Business channel on YouTube, and you'll have a chance to see Connie and I instead of just hearing us if you're listening on one of the audio channels. See you again soon. Thank you. Coming up next, you're going to have an opportunity to hear from Dr. K.R. Patel, who is an expert in looking at the patient safety aspects of our very complex healthcare system. He is a physician who is the chief medical officer of Proactive MD and is a noted speaker and expert in this field. Dr. Patel, what were some of the key topics that we covered in the podcast that we just recorded? You know, Pat, the key thing is the medical errors continues to be a big concern of everyone, knowing that the systemic errors are much higher than the human errors is something that we need to acknowledge first. Second, create an ecosystem 
from the board members down, from the leadership, a culture of safety within their system, healthcare system, or the smaller systems. And third is to develop a systemic approach, simplified, that one walk through any time there is a possible gaps in care or a delay in care or the wrong drug or medication error. So that way, if it's a systemic approach, easy to follow, then we can run through that system and analyze even the smallest gap in care or potential gap in care so we can improve the process in the future. And knowing this, the key thing is to really develop something in-house that works for your system, your colleagues, your leadership, is what I call the anatomy of a systemic gaps in care. Just a blueprint, a uh, something that works for you. And looking at the systemic errors, looking at eight major broad buckets, we can embed these into the workflow. And Dr. Patel points out in his podcast how you can use those eight buckets when you're analyzing medical records or working with your attorney client to suggest some documents to be obtained during discovery or questions to ask in deposition of defendants. All of that and much more in Dr. Patel's podcast coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast. Be sure that you catch this show. It will change some of your thinking, I believe, as we spend a lot of time in the legal system pointing at individuals as the cause of an error when in reality they are working within a system that may not support them effectively in delivering quality care. So catch that podcast coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.